invite you to enter this portal of strange and unimaginable. I simply ask that you suspend your judgment and expand your mind in the vastness of the unknown. Come witness the wonder that is our reality. The truth is out there, and so am I. Wife of a Demon Hunter, extraordinary tales of all things paranormal. Hello, my name is Dorinda Stewart, and I am the Wife of a Demon Hunter. Hello, today my guest is Kirsty Allen from Scotland near the Glasgow area. She's a parapsychology researcher, transpersonal psychology and conscientious research she works in, lifelong experiencer, and Christy was part of the burlesque movement in Europe. She has also had a few ghost encounters, and she does an online membership called the IF Crowd. Welcome, Christy. Thank you for being here today. Thank you very much. It's nice. Um, For those who don't know exactly what parapsychology or PSI research is, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, PSI, generally known as PSI, or PSI, depending on how you like to pronounce it, is kind of the academic term we use to talk about all things psychic. So the word psychic comes a bit loaded. It kind of comes with lots of different connotations around belief. So the more neutral term psi is used. So in parapsychology, we are looking at things beyond the the usual remit of psychology. So it's anomalous experience, paranormal experience, if you will, transpersonal experience, which means to go beyond the person. And that's where psi comes in because it really refers to things like telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, precognitive dreams, psychokinesis, all these kind of fun things. Ah, so so transpersonal psychology and conscientious consciousness research that's kind of all in the same umbrella so to speak yeah yeah there's kind of like a there's a beautiful venn diagram where they all kind of come together but really fundamentally we're looking to address the same sorts of questions which is really about the nature of the psyche the nature of who and what we really are um in terms of our consciousness because you know consciousness well it's kind of fundamental isn't it because we experience everything through consciousness um as an experience so parapsychology takes kind of a slightly more traditional scientific approach is a bit more experimental it tends to deal with quantitative as well as qualitative data and more so in recent years we're getting more into the qualitative side which is where like the transpersonal um you know influence comes in more as well because that's much more about the quality the contents of people's experiences and all of that together is really uh, consciousness research and so much more Ah, so in the paranormal world, um, how would this exactly apply? Okay, well, it could apply in pretty much um, any which way you want to look at the paranormal. It can apply in terms of how people think and feel about paranormal experiences or how they think and feel about the paranormal in general, whether they believe in it, whether they don't believe in it. Um, But it also looks at um, the, the... the ontology of those experiences so what we mean by that really is are they real you know we're looking to establish what can we say is really happening what can we say maybe isn't really happening Uh, and where are these things happening you know are they are they happening from within the mind from within the brain structures are they happening in the environment um you know can more than one person share in a particular experience and ultimately, what we're looking for is meaning, you know, that's that's our human nature, isn't it, is to, to find meaning. Um, but in terms of the science, we're really just trying to 
get a hold of what we can, what might be tangible, especially when looking at such a huge intangible subject. Right. Yeah, tangible and intangible. That's that's that's, that's the rough part. Uh, being a psychic myself, I know that I run into some, some things sometimes that, you know, I can't explain, but it's there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <clears throat> that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You use the word experiencer. Um, um, is that a ghost or an alien experiences or is that both? It's a bit of everything, really. I've been a lifelong experiencer of all things which you could consider like anomalous. That's a more neutral term. Or paranormal, if you know, when I just go there and we <laughs> call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's perfect, there's perfectly good arguments around a lot of these things actually being kind of normal, but just not understood yet. You know, um, you know, especially when we look at consciousness um, as a wider concept. But yes, I've had what could be termed ghost encounters. Um, I haven't, as far as I'm aware, encountered any aliens. However, I have seen anomalous lights. Um, and I've got quite a few stories around all of these different things. And I've certainly experienced um, what seems to me to be uh, mind-to-mind communication and also precognition. Uh, so being able to see events um, somehow before they happen. I, I have not experienced any uh, light anomalies or anything like that. Um, Joe has, but I haven't. So um, I, I'm waiting for that because, you know, I, I Kathy who we both know had talked about her experience, which was pretty, um, very, like very enlightening and opening up. So it'd be nice to see something like that. Um, so my question to you is what is the weirdest or unsettling experience that you have encountered? Hmm. Good question. Um, I suppose the weirdest in some respects would be the things where there appeared to be something very physical in the environment and reality around me, because that's, I suppose, so incredibly challenging to what we assume is correct, what we assume is natural, what we assume is possible. And one of those particular instances, it was a BOL, a ball of light. And this uh, was outdoors, ironically, or perhaps not, on a ghost walk, for fun, uh, in the city of Bath in England. And I was with the tour group, and it's very dark. It was nighttime, of course, because all good ghost tours happen at night. And behind the speaker, there just appeared this very, very, very intense, very kind of large white ball of light. No other way to describe it. This was not like someone's torch beam. This was something that looked very, very solid, very physical, very there. And I I saw this, um, it was probably the size of a basketball, maybe a bit bigger. Uh, You know, I couldn't see through it. It was very real. I'm trying to get across here. It was real. (laughs) And and it passed behind the gentleman's legs. And I don't know why or how, but I had just had this sense that there was a consciousness, this sense of awareness somehow that it knew I was looking at it, like it wanted to be seen. And then I turned and I looked at the rest of the tour group and there was one person staring with his mouth dropped to the ground, <laughs> staring at like something right out of a horror movie, you know, just abject kind of fear. He was just staring and no one else in the group seemed to have noticed this thing. And then at this point, I turned back to look to see where it was going and it dashed off into some hedges, you know, without, you know, uh, the ruffle of a, of a leaf or anything. It just disappeared. As strangely as that was, later after the tour, um, I spoke with this gentleman and I asked him, did you see anything unusual tonight? And he said, no. I asked him again, I said, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure I saw you see something. And I didn't 
did tell him what it was, but I reminded him, I said, well, we were in the field at this time and the gentleman was saying this and something moved behind him and his face returned to that same posture of absolute shock, that real fear, that jaw drop. And um, yeah, I could see that he was really struggling to integrate this. And very, very quickly, again, I could, he was talking himself out of it. He was deciding that it didn't happen. Yet here I was, you know, having had the shared experience. So in some ways, that was a particularly strange one. And, and other times, it's been witnessing kind of ghostly things and finding objects move or finding that they, they appear to move, like the eyes on a doll appear to move. Mm. And they appear to move in response to me asking questions in my head. Um, but the, unfortunately, there were no other witnesses of that. Um, this is a great segue because, um, I was going to, um, say, what would you tell someone who has experienced something and is afraid to talk about it? And there's a lot of people that are afraid to talk about what they experienced because they don't want to seem like they're a kook, I guess. So Yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. when we have these experiences, it's important to recognize how we feel about them because our emotions are really powerful and they're they're kind of our guiding compass they're telling us an awful lot more about our reality than we give them credit for and if our reaction is to be afraid to tell someone about what we've experienced then in a kind of ironic topsy-turvy way that's a massive reassurance that what you experienced has has validity it has some kind of reality to it you know if it was so easy just to dismiss it then you wouldn't be having this worry this anxiety I always find anxiety is actually, um, it, it's one of those um, experiences that sensitive people have that kind of fundamentally reassure you of who you actually are and what your values are. So I'd suggest that they seek out the an appropriate person. So someone who maybe is known to this genre, someone like myself, someone like yourself, um, just for an opinion. You know, maybe not putting it out on social media because you're kind of inviting people to... Uh, the yeah. haters yeah <laughs> yeah whatever you know this um, muscle they have um you want to be sensitive about this and you want to be sensible and you also want to um maybe consider that you give yourself the respect and that there are people who understand this who can share in this and what's ultimately um important here is what it means what's the meaning to you what does it mean for you at the time what does it mean for you now is it is it bringing up lots of questions well let's explore those right and the validation, because it seems like if you can talk to someone who is like-minded, it kind of helps you validate. Because sometimes when you have experiences like that, you think to yourself, I'm crazy, or that, that didn't really happen. You kind of uh, deny what's going on. And if you could have, um, you know, if you talk with someone who's experienced that as well, then that kind of gives you some validation of what you had seen. Absolutely. And, you know, I often think that the people who never doubt their sanity, people who never experience anything a little bit unusual, those are the people I worry about. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I um you know Joe and I we talk to psychiatrists and psychologists all the time because of the work that we're in you know the demon work mm -hmm. and you know and we always say well you know I think we're crazy and then they'll say well you know if you think you're crazy you probably aren't <laughs> so it's like yeah, that's a good exactly. thing I guess <laughs> um, we had talked about the f feminine aspect of the paranormal do you believe there is an equal playing field when it comes to women's voices in that field I believe that this is um, a very relevant question right now. I think that women's voices have been massively underrepresented and I think they still are. Uh, I'm very aware that when we look at the surrounding literature, 
around um, say poltergeist cases just as an example we tend to be hearing the voices and the opinions of the men who investigated and they're also representing the voices of the women who were involved um it seems to be that the there's a kind of again a kind of deep irony that where there's been a, a young woman who has um a, experience some kind of phenomena some kind of activity um her experience is represented by a third party older man and curiously <laughs> the young woman is often said to speak in uh, a deep male voice and mm -hmm. i think there's something quite kind of curious about that because it's almost like even if she was to come forward and to speak we would still be hearing an older male anyway <laughs> yeah. So only older males can be evil, I guess, right? Or ghosts, I guess. I, just think I guess we could put that on them, that. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just think there's something in there. There's something right. playful almost in right. that. Now, whether that's in part coming from the experiencer herself or whether this actually speaks more to um, maybe how these entities, energies kind of want to engage, I don't know. But there's definitely um, a, a vast need for reflection now, I think, on hearing women's voices and also moving forward, because um, traditionally speaking, feminine approaches to experience, in particular, anomalous and paranormal experience, it, they tend to be very emotional, they tend to be a high sensitivity, it tends to be an embodied experience, and this tends to correspond anthropologically, historically, to women's roles in culture and society and general psychological makeup as well. Uh, the women tend to be perhaps a little bit more in tune with uh, bodily sensations, with changes, with emotions in the environment, with um, dynamics between personalities, for example. And for, and for this to be overlooked on a number of levels, especially in the reporting and the gathering of the information, then we're really left with an incredibly skewed understanding of what paranormal experience actually is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, I, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, here in America, I feel we have more women than men in the psychic world. Um, would you say that that's true in Europe, or is there more men that are claimed to be psychic in the in Europe? <laughs> It's interesting. Um, I don't have any exact statistics on that, but certainly I think there's been a cultural change over the past 20 odd years. It certainly used to be considered more that the scientists would naturally be male, would be men, they would be um, working in a masculine way. And uh, women who were involved would tend to come in as the sensitives or the mediums or, you know, or perhaps the, the experiencers or in some cases, as I've heard, the victim. Um, and this kind of plays to certain kind of gender stereotypes. But I think that's been shifting. The, and it's been shifting in two ways. One, more women are coming into uh, a scientific approach and bringing with them that embodied feminine way of understanding and way of processing information as well. So science is having to fundamentally adapt and change and the culture within that to become more accepting and move up, moving away from this hyper-masculine, got to measure the crap out of everything mm -hmm. um, kind of approach, which doesn't really get us very far when you can't get a hold of the thing you want to measure. And at the same time, we see more and more men actually becoming very, very interested in it, the experience of psychic phenomena and stepping forward as sensitives, as mediums. Um, and there's certainly a big media culture for that as well. Yeah. Um, in the, um, in the uh, psychic world, um, there's a lot of... of 
skeptics. Um, people sit there and they always try to test um, the psychic's ability. And I believe that psychics have different talents. Would that be something that you would agree with too? I mean, because, you know, they call them the Claire's, you know, like clairvoyant, clairaudio, all those different mm -hmm. things. But I just think that they're in tune to certain things. So like if you have a room full of psychics, they might not all see the same thing the same way. Would you agree mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, I think that um, the Claire's are, are as, as uh, varied as our personality traits and our natural talents. You know, it's like if someone has a natural aptitude for music, it doesn't mean they can all play the piano. You know, it could be that um, some people can read music, some people can't. It could be that some people are uh, just uh, naturally, you know, pitch perfect, for example. So I think that it, it's the same as ways of processing information. So whether someone tends to be visual, auditory, more kinesthetic, maybe um, more reliant on, um, you know, information itself, you know, there's all sorts of ways. And I think that's where transpersonal psychology really helps us understand these things because it's about knowledge and processing and understanding beyond the individual that's you know that there's information out there how we process it is um almost an idiosyncratic quirk you have experienced um some hauntings um and some strange things at a photo sh shoot in germany could you tell us a little bit about that yeah that was probably what i mentioned before one of my weirder experiences um <laughs> For so many reasons, probably the context of it was very strange. Um, I was, uh, in my youth, I was an alternative model and performer. And I was taken out to Germany, isn't it? Hamburg, I think we were in the Erotic Museum of Hamburg before, shortly before it closed. And we were in a stairwell taking photographs. So I was posing on the stairwell. There was um, like a Victorian, a sort of 19th century like theatre dummy posed on the stairs. It had like... Um, ceramic eyes and you know it was made of straw and you know kind of porcelain type face and things and I was posing with this and interestingly the there came a point where the camera stopped working that I could just hear the photographer was just swearing away in German and I was really transfixed by this dummy I don't really know why but it did feel like the atmosphere changed a bit like time was standing still and I just heard this voice speak to me in German, something that's, my German was kind of limited, but it was something along the lines of what, what time is now or something like that. Uh, and all the while in the background, the photographer is swearing, the makeup artist is trying to help him get his camera working. It was just basically catastrophic failure for the duration of this experience. And I spoke to this voice in my head and I looked at the, the dummy's face and I swear the eyes moved entirely from one direction to look at mine and then back and I just went cold you know I really really that did not just happen and I thought oh hang on wait a minute do it again you know and I dared it to do it again <laughs> do you know what it did oh my goodness wow uh, yeah I'm going cold now just even remembering it it was like <laughs> the strangest thing um and then at that point it was like I don't know some kind of magic someone snapped their fingers the environment returned and the camera started working again and later um that evening um as with most people be you know i was a little bit nervous about relaying this to anybody but i thought i'm just going to ask and i asked a couple of people if anyone had had a strange experience in this part of the building on these on these stairs it was a stairwell and it turned out that earlier that day another model felt something push her 
and another person had seen um, a light going up the stairs and they tried to follow it but could never catch up with it so curiously enough a liminal space my big interests is luminality. Um, you know, in our demon hunts, the, one of the one of the most recent ones, there was a deer head, and the deer head moved. It looked at me and then looked back up, and I went, "Did that just happen?" And it's funny how you, that's just what you say too. You're like, "Did that just happen?" And Joe goes, "Yep," because I didn't even know that Joe had seen it too. So it's like, <laughs> you know, again validation. But it's like, you know, there's hallucinations, a lot of hallucinations that come along with the paranormal. So yeah, I don't know if it really happens or if it's just a, the hallucination of it happening, but it does happen. So yeah. So, um, you, in your bio, you had talked about burlesque. Okay. I really Mm -hmm. love this idea. And you were a part of the original movement in Europe. Tell us how it was in the beginning compared to how it is now and how well received was it in the beginning? Well, um, as you probably gathered, so I'm, I'm very much uh, of the avant-garde. So I am attracted to anything that's kind of on the fringe, anything that's alternative, Anything where there's a bit of taboo. For me, uh, controversy is the drive behind social evolution and where we can find those growing edges, whether it's arts or science. I just believe that that's where we need to be, you know, so that we open up these conversations, these bigger conversations about who and what we really are. Uh, And with burlesque, it came about, um, you know, as I had mentioned, I've been modeling in my teens, early 20s. And when I was at university, um, I... I wanted to revisit the idea of performing on stage. It's something I had done as a child and I had kind of lost a lot of self-confidence. And the thought of it terrified me, terrified me so much I couldn't sleep after being booked in for something to perform with a band. And I realized that the only way to conquer this was to do it. And so by some kind of (laughs) unconscious cosmic accident, I set up a a little theater group for myself and some fellow students called Ministry of Burlesque. And this was before burlesque was really a thing. I, I chose burlesque because it tied in with my modeling interest at the time. And it tied in with, you know, I had an interest in Victoriana and it had an interest in gender politics. And as I said, the growing edges of taboo, really. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to, to take a, a taboo from the past and reawaken it in the now to create conversation? So it created a conversation that was in a way safe because the taboo was from the past. So we were kind of saying how silly was this ever that, you know, that women were, were told how they ought to behave on stage, etc. So the whole idea of burlesque was to give a delicately gloved middle finger to that notion that women ought to behave in certain ways. Um, and so that's what we did. We, uh, we were all psychology students and we were just experimenting with these ideas of like giant you know, underpants and uh, corsetry <laughs> and all sorts of things and bloomers and, you know, the absurdity of wearing all the stuff, which was more than most people would wear in the summer, yet somehow this represented a horrendous gender taboo. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of developed from there. And I think there was a bit of zeitgeist, uh, or maybe it was one of my precognitive moments, I'm not sure. Um, but it just seemed to launch into um, a new trend, really. Uh, so this was t- the 2002, 2003 and um, at that moment, there seemed to be uh, a burlesque movement in America. It had already been ongoing, and the time was right, and more and more people became curious and interested in the way to get involved, so we developed a community. And 20 years on now, it's still going, still producing shows. Uh, I don't perform myself anymore, 
we're still producing them and it's wonderful to see how it's gone from being just about um, the taboo of women's bodies it's really shifted into a much wider conversation about gender identity and sexuality as well so i always joke that freud would be really proud or really impressed or horrified <laughs> i'm not sure yeah. about my <laughs> about my career of <laughs> sex and death <laughs> well, I like the idea. I just love the burlesque idea because, you know, there was a time when women were supposed to be shameful of their bodies. And like you said, you wear more um, in the burlesque show than you do on the beach most of the time. And it's just it's just very fun. Like if you've ever gone to a burlesque show, they always have these fun things in there, too. You know, there's like these jokes. It's, it's like it's like a satire, really, of, you know, uh, sex and all that. So. Um, do you ever run into haters? Did you ever run into haters back then that thought that it was sexist or shameful? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the the, the plethora of opinion was um, was abundant. And, you know, for, for and against. And curiously for and against for all the same reasons as one another. So some people would say it's pro-feminist. Some people would say it's anti-feminist, depending on how they personally perceived the genre. But also, I think probably based on how it made them feel. And I think that's something that, you know, um, hopefully as a society we're progressing to work with our emotions more and more as as sources of information, just as we do in the paranormal world, you know? So um, so for me, the, all of these um, experiences uh, are kind of underpinned by what it is to be human and taking it on the chin, really, like taking the criticism and, and sort of being okay with that, that usually, usually it wasn't personal. Um, it was just rattling someone's cage. And that was a good thing because without doing that, without ruffling some feathers, excuse the pun, um, no progress would be made. You know, there wouldn't be room for conversation. So it's important. So was there any paranormal things that happened to you while you were doing burlesque? Uh, not so much doing burlesque itself, um, but the modeling side, yes. Like, where, okay. you know, I think maybe because it was more, um, more or less still life. <laughs> I can excuse the pun. Uh, you know, I was able to notice more. In the theaters, though, for sure, it's a lot of theaters in the basements of theaters. You, you could feel an atmosphere. You could certainly have encounters. And I always made a point of gathering ghost stories from the various theaters. And... You know, there was an occasion where I went in as a paranormal investigator into an old music hall where burlesque used to be performed in Glasgow in the Victorian era. Uh, and that is notoriously haunted. Uh, oh. And then subsequently, I took a load of performers into that building to have a look around and, you know, to get a feel for the past of their their artistic genre. And yeah, sure, they were seeing things. Um, they, you know, and they felt things. They had um, their own experiences there as well. That's wonderful. So what would be the best way for someone to get into burlesque? Where would they start? Like if somebody wanted to get into burlesque over in Europe or even here, where would they, where should they begin? Um, there's lots of ways to do it. And I guess it depends on what you're attracted to. So, I mean, you could go online, you could have a look through lots and lots of videos. They're all freely available online. Get a feel for the different styles because there's not just one style. There's infinite numbers of styles. And that's one of the beauties of it is that people create their own style because they bring their own passions, they bring their own talents, their own natural traits, they bring their own influences into it. So some will involve striptease, but some won't. You know, the traditional British method of burlesque didn't really involve striptease. That was actually, um, you know, quite uh, unique, really, to the American reinterpretation of it. Um, and, you know, that's where it's been considered to be very glamorous and very kind of... Um, 
celebratory of, of femininity in that sense. And the British form tended to be a little bit more satirical. Um, and so it all gets blended with circus, comedy, um, musical theatre, magic, all sorts of things now. So go online, um, go to shows, get some inspiration, talk to the performers, just email them or go up to them and ask them for how did they get started or, you know, um, what's the what's the first steps in their particular area? There could be some dance classes locally that support um, burlesque styles. But then again, maybe if dance isn't your thing, that doesn't mean you don't get involved because as I said, burlesque is a multi, multi-skill genre. So um, you can also come to ministryofburlesque.com. That's the website for my theatre company. And uh, we have lots of like uh, articles and things on there. Uh, and I've certainly I've written a book on, on the subject as well, which hopefully will be out next year and celebrating, you know, 20 years of the company. Um, and it's very much about um, encouraging people to bring their own voice to the stage, because that's really what burlesque is about. Even if they're not physically using their voice, many do, some don't, um, this is really a genre that is always rooted in um, gender equality and people getting on stage and being heard and making a point. So could you repeat that um, website one more time? Yeah, you can check out www.ministryofburlesque.com. Okay. And, and you will see all work there. Yeah, well, what about the, uh, and, um, the, um, the IF crowd? Could you repeat? Is there a... Sure, if... yeah. The IF crowd membership. This is a personal development membership, especially aimed at highly sensitive persons. This is www.theifcrowd.com. So that's I-F-F as in you know, what if, that's what we do. We ask lots of what if questions and it helps us to explore consciousness and the nature of all things, well, psychic. Okay. Well, our time is up. I love chatting with you. Thank you for sharing your life with me. Um, Until next time, this is Dorinda, the wife of a demon hunter.